Ah yes, my great nation, India. What a journey it has been through. From being accountable for 26% of global GDP to being used as fuel for the British Empire and to now being somewhat of a 3 trillion dollar economy itself. India's economic history, like the sheer economic history of India is a very riveting story. So, today I just want to keep things simple and backtrack. Individual, economic, social and political freedom were envisioned by the politicians who led us to freedom and almost 76 years later India seeks to join the 5 trillion dollar club changing these ideals. So, today we examine the influences of socialism, post-socialism, liberalization and the after on economic policy and you know India's millennial transition along with present statistics and obviously a very livid view of the future in the coming decade and more this is our second last episode of the season and i want to keep things real so let's get right into it cash me if you can your gateway into the world of financial freedom India's independence changed its economy. Britain's deindustrialization left the country destitute and only one-sixth of Indians were literate. Abject poverty and sharp social differences called India's unity into question and very justifiably so. And according to Cambridge historian Angus Madison, India's share of world income fell from 26.6% in 1700 to 3.8% in 1952. Former Prime Minister Manmohan Singh called India the brightest jewel in the British crown at the beginning of the 20th century and that was also rightfully so in Jawaharlal Nehru's development model which was just after independence the state was a dominant entrepreneur and financer of private businesses and in 1948 congress proposed a mixed economy earlier the bombay plan so yeah it's it went, so yeah it was called the bombay plan proposed a large public sector with state interventions and regulations to protect indigenous industries because obviously when you get plundered by the british for 200 years you have to resort to protecting your own country so see since planning is impossible in a market economy political leaders believe that the state and public sector would lead economic growth and in this planning commission was set up in 1950 which is now the niti aayog by the way to oversee resource allocation five year plan implementations and evaluations which was obviously modeled after the ussrs like you know because five year plans were centralized economic and social growth programs and obviously had to be after the ussrs and india's first five year plan focused on agriculture and social growth programs and irrigation actually to boost farm output because of food grain imports the harrod domar model aimed to boost economic growth through high savings and investments the economy grew at a rate of over 3.6% annually beating the target of 2.1%. Then BR Shenoy, a student of FA Hayek, advocated free market liberalism early on. And in a famous dissent note, he warned that relying on deficit financing to promote heavy industrialization was a very bad idea. He actually said that the government control of the economy would harm a young democracy. And an external payment crisis a year into the plan proved Shenoy right. He criticized Nehru's import substitution policy and his ideas outlived him and actually ended up becoming India's mainstream economic doctrine. 
The second five-year plan, an industrial policy resolution of 1956, which was long considered uh, India's mainstream economic constitution, paved the way for public sectors and the license raj. Resolution called for a socialist society. It also categorized industries. Basic and strategic industries were public. State-owned enterprises were the second group, and the private sector was the third, mostly consumer industries. A system of licenses restrained the private sector, which hampered economic growth over about, let's say. short of 50 years so india faced economic and political challenges in the 1600s and even two wars were caused due to hardships that's from nehru and shastri caused political instability and power jockeying in the congress we all know that story then indira gandhi's repeat devaluation raised prices and the outcome of that after the 1967 elections congress returned with a truncated majority and lost seven seats then in 1969 this is very important uh, ms gandhi nationalized 14 private banks and that move aimed to increase bank lending to agriculture at a time when big businesses dominated credit flow so her draconian move to align banking with socialism made her popular but it heavily affected the nation nationalizing banks boosted farm credit and other lending and rural bank branches boosted financial savings but banks yeah they struggled Lenders became complacent without competition, and politically influenced lending led to crony capitalism. Instead of project appraisals, these banks competed to please political bosses. See, even now, state-owned banks are struggling under a ten trillion dollar mountain of bad loans, or ninety percent of the total. And after the Janata government collapsed in nineteen eighty, Indira Gandhi returned to power, and she initiated reforms to secure an IMF loan in the sixth five-year plan in eighteen. in 1980-85 she pledged to boost economy's competitiveness and this meant removing price controls implementing fiscal reforms um revamping the public sector reducing import duties and delicensing the domestic industry or ending the license raj anyways the indian government spends more than it earns resulting in a high fiscal deficit and the government spends a lot on debt service defense pension food fertilizer and food subsidies and even housing poverty health and cleanliness a large portion of the government's capital is stuck on its own companies and holdings exactly the government companies good capital continues to chase bad and there is no political will to implement bold reforms padma desai the first asian woman to earn a phd in economics from harvard in 1960 is known for criticizing india's planned economy her 1970s book on india's industrial and trade policies co-authored with chakdish bhagwati influenced professional thinking and policy making so the crux of the history is long before 1991 india's worst economic crisis was evident and on 13 may 1991 the country sold 28 tons of gold to ubs to secure a 240 million dollar loan and at that sale it pledged gold three more times to secure 400 million loans from the bank of england and the bank of japan by december all this gold was repurchased on 21st june 1991 the narasimha rao government led with manmohan singh as finance minister dismantled the license raj Manmohan Singh was the finance minister in 1991, but not a reformer as a prime minister. So in February 2006, his government launched the Mahatma Gandhi National Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme. Yeah, that's a mouthful, but you know, Manrega, in 200 of the most backward districts. Now this scheme provided at least 100 days of guaranteed wage employment to every rural household whose adult members volunteered for unskilled manual work. And during Singh's ten years as prime minister. the economy grew and loan rates fell because you know liberalizing india made stock market investments a way to make a quick buck and compensate for the falling savings rate this boom 
again, broad white collar crime and standard regulations. By now, we all know about the Hushman Mehta scam of 1992. But let me tell you, there were dozens more. Yeah, high level too. Anyways, the SEC was formed and scandals of all kinds led rise to regulations and, you know, to increase transparency, to use technology to reform the Indian market. We all know what happened. That's not why I'm looking after here. The point is that 2000s were actually pretty boring. Don't get me wrong, there was tumultuous economic growth, but it was still pretty boring. So let's skip a few years. Over the past decade, right now, there's been so many startups which have mushroomed across India as young entrepreneurs experiment with ideas in digital payments, online retail, on-demand delivery, education, software, even drones. One of India's first startups in early unicorns, um, Flipkart, was valued at over $21 billion in just 2018 when Walmart acquired it. The number of unicorns and new businesses valued at over $1 billion has also risen every single year, and I think it peaked in 2021. Or even now, I'm not sure about that. Anyways, the point is, the last decade has been remarkable for India. In 2010, India was the ninth largest country in the world based on nominal GDP. Now, it's the fifth, putting behind the UK. And in 2019, India's nominal GDP was 2.87 trillion. In 2022, it is 3.23 trillion. So, India's real GDP growth has been at an average of 6.66% over the last decade. Not shabby. Not shabby at all. But the decade's changes aren't just numerical. Policies have shifted, and India's recent growth has lifted a record number of people out of poverty, which is a very crucial point. Because as I emphasize on almost every other episode, capitalism is the only thing that can lift people out of poverty. Proven again and again. So, in India, the growing middle class makes the country um, the MNC's top market. And India is the world's second largest smartphone and car market too. And India's software industry, which is well known, directly employs 5 million people and indirectly up to 10 million. The thing is, India is a large and young economy. Half of India's people are under 26. And this very demographic could make India a global economic engine. Because while half of Europe is too old to work, our population is literally young. They are ready to work. But what do they need? Skills. We'll get there. We all know the steps our government, recent government took, like demonetization and the GST reforms and all that. I actually don't want to get into that very much because I don't want to get into the controversy and, you know, uh, this debate is actually very subjective. And not even mention the effects are still not yet visible because uh, the whole GST thing, right? The effects are yet to be understood in the next five to seven years. So... It is still actually too early to comment on it, so I won't. I'll get to the economic goal aspect of it. Even, let's say, the infrastructure, right? The last decade was important in terms of infrastructure. Despite the pandemic, highway construction rose to 30 kilometers a day from 12 kilometers a day in 2014 to 15. And even our finance minister in the Indian budget of 2021 to 2022 said that more than 13,000 kilometers of road has been awarded under the 5.35 lakh crore project. And anyways, so, let's get our concrete goals here. India's next goal, as we all know, is a $5 trillion economy. And after the pandemic in 2020, India's economy was ready for the double-digit GDP growth in 2021. But as we all know, we cut down that expectations two times over. And yeah, it was a bit underwhelming. 
you know, there is this thing called the Indian Economic Conclave, the IEC, which is focuses on India's potential to overtake the world economy in this crucial decade. And to realize this vision, policy, strategy, industry and society must collaborate, inspiring the themes every year. And the thing is, with so much discussion going around, do these new and improved policies really help India succeed? The Russian invasion of Ukraine escalated just as the global economy appeared to be recovering from the pandemic. And crude oil, gas, wheat, corn and other commodities have soared in price. We all know that. The conflict has also brought Russia financial sanctions and political pressure from the West. And these will have unpredictable and unintended effects on the global financial system and the economy. Global investors are shoring up their money in safer events such as gold and US treasuries. While emerging market equities are flux since the US Federal Reserve's announcement to deeper asset purchases in November. And even now, uh, yesterday, on by a 75-point basis. So, the invasion of Ukraine and its potential economic impact have forced several economic forecasters to revise their growth projections for the year. And must predict slower growth for 2022. So, India will now grow at 78% over the next decade and be the third largest economy in the world by 2030. Mr. Arvind Panagriya, Professor of Economics at Columbia University and former Vice Chairman of Niti Aayog, said this could reach 9-10% by expanding operations and eliminating protectionism. Now, economists say that the next 10 years could be the most important in India's economic history. If everything goes according to plan, India will reap the benefits of its favourable demography in the, 20, in the 2030s and 2040s before losing that edge in the 2050s. And India isn't the only emerging economy reeling from external shocks. India's economic fundamentals are actually strong and short-term turbulence will have little impact on the long-term outlook. Like for 2023, growth-enhancing policies and schemes such as production-linked incentives and government push towards self-reliance and increased infrastructure spending will lead to a stronger multiplier effect on jobs and income, higher productivity and more efficiency, all leading to accelerated economic growth. The focus of manufacturing in India, which is common incentives like lower taxes and raising Services, exports on the back of digitization and technology, transformation will help growth. Several geopolitical spillover effects could boost India's investment status, like global enough centers and multinationals may prefer India over Eastern European markets, especially those bordering Ukraine, to relocate or open new facilities. A large vaccinated population may also help contain future infection waves and also draw businesses in that sense. So, on the strength of these factors, India's economy can grow about 7.5% and 6.5% growth respectively in the coming years. And even China may lose its title as the fastest growing economy to India. So see, for the next two year projections, uh, this is I think based by McKinsey. There are two scenarios, baseline and pessimistic, based on the possibility of new virus variants and the Russia-Ukraine crisis. So oil and gas prices are a key variable for India. And in the baseline scenario, the Ukraine crisis improves, if not ends, and in the second half of 2022, businesses and investors focused on fundamentals and growth potentials. And thanks to improved vaccination coverage, future infection waves will have minimal economic impact. The Indian government and RBI balance growth, inflation and capital flight as the US Fed raises rates. And this is actually the way we are headed. But the pessimistic scenario extends the crisis. This affects financial stability and supply chain disruptions, obviously, especially in the semiconductor, food and auto industries, where Russia and Ukraine are major raw material suppliers. And in this scenario, subsequent COVID waves uh, may have a greater impact on the economy, given the geopolitical and global pandemic 
situation. This scenario is unlikely, but inflation will likely be a wild card this year and even the next and probably even the next. Rising oil, gas, commodity, food and fertilizer prices may cause dumps of trade shock and cause push inflation. Supply disruptions and sanctions will raise global and domestic prices obviously and as production costs rise across industries, producer prices will rise but consumer prices will depend on pasture. Rapid economic reopening will boost contact intensive service sectors that have lagged and this will raise service prices, worsening inflation. For gainful and productive employment growth of this magnitude, India's GDP must grow by 8 to 8.5% annually over the next decade or about double the 4.2% rate in 2022. And due to economic uncertainty during the pandemic, the thing is, economists begin scenarios from the year 2023. See, the thing is, net employment must grow by 1.5% per year from 2023 to 2030, similar to India's average rate from 2000 to 2012, but much higher than the flat rate from 2013 to 18. And this is a crucial point. India must maintain productivity growth between 6.5 and 7% per year, as it did from 2013 to 2018. Employment can't grow sustainably without high productivity and vice versa. So if India fails to address the pre-pandemic trends of flat employment and slow economic growth and does not manage the crisis adequately, its economy could grow by just 5.5 to 6% from 2023 to 2030, with a decadal growth of just 5% and absorb only 6 million new workers, making a decade of missed opportunity. And India is one of the 18 emerging economies to achieve robust and consistent high growth over the past three decades. Pro-growth reforms, as we established, have obviously helped the country weather shocks and cycles. And since 1992, real GDP growth has averaged 6.8% annually and has been inclusive, economic prosperity and improved living standards. And since 2005, 270 million people have escaped poverty. Even after the aftermath of the global financial crisis in 2008, India's main demand engines of domestic private investment and global demand have stalled. And from fiscal year of 2012 to 2019, Bank credit to industries slowed and non-performing assets tripled to 9%. Between 2013 and 19, India's exports fell from 25% of GDP to 19%. And gross domestic and household savings slowed between 2005 and 18. And labor force participation fell from 58% to 49%. And even manufacturing and construction showed strain. India's sectoral mix must shift towards a higher productivity, job-creating sector mix in return to high growth. New business models that harness global trends could boost productivity and demand within sectors. And India must leapfrog to boost employment and productivity. It has many chances. Digitization and automation, shifting supply chains, urbanization, rising incomes and demographic shifts, and a greater focus on sustainability, health and safety are accelerating or assuming new significance after the pandemic. These trends could be India's post-pandemic growth booster. And Within these three growth boosters, which I'll go on to describe, 43 business opportunities could create 2.5 trillion in economic value by 2030 and support 112 million jobs or 30% of non-farm workforce. Now the first growth booster, India's global hubs. It is worth about $1 trillion. And to do so, India must see the opportunities like rising wages in Asia, trade conflicts and efforts to strengthen supply chains. Rising data flows such as the demand for offshore and nearshore services, greater affluence, leisure time, and you know health and safety will open opportunities to produce and sell more goods and services. 
India must improve its competitiveness in high potential sectors like electronics and capital goods, chemicals, textiles and apparel, you know, auto and auto components, pharmaceuticals and medical devices, which account for 56% of global trade in 2018-2019. And India exports 1.5% of global total in these sectors and imports 2.3%. India could also build on its IT-enabled services to reflect digital and emerging technologies like AI and machine learning based analytics. The country can also develop high-value agricultural ecosystems like healthcare services and tourism. Now, the second booster would be competitiveness. These business models eliminate inefficiency in power, logistics, financial services, automation, and government services. Each case could create a value-creating market-based models worth $865 billion by 2030. And the next generation financial services include digital payments innovations, new flow-based lending products, asset resolution, and recovery models that can streamline insolvency processes, and a wider range of risk capital investment vehicles like, automate, like alternative investment funds. The automation industry could increase efficiency, like 60% of manufacturing output could use predictive maintenance, smart safety management, and product design. Overall, the goal is to improve efficiency. And that, I think we can do. Now, the third factor would be India tripling its large firms to capture frontier opportunities. Large companies with revenues of over $500 million drive growth and innovation in India and other emerging economies too. It's, it's a very common phenomenon. And India has 600 such companies. And the thing is, they are 2.3 times more productive than mid-sized firms, accounting for 40% of exports and employ 20% of the formal workforce. India has fewer large firms compared to other emerging economies. Like in 2018, large Indian companies contributed to 48% of nominal GDP, 1.5 to 1.6 times less than China, Malaysia, Thailand, and even 3.5 times less than South Korea. So India's large companies are not productive or profitable. Overall productivity is 1 by 10 to 1 by 4th of outperformer economies. And their returns on asset has dropped from 1.9 to 1.2% since 2012. Just 20 large firms make 80% of the country's profit. So India has a missing middle of mid-sized firms that can become formidable rivals. Peer emerging economies have twice as many mid-sized firms per trillion of GDP. The government and business community will develop a clear vision. And under whatever leadership we get over the next 10 years, yeah, that part of politics in India is a bit sketchy and, you know, and I really don't want to go there here, but with a right institutional body, with the right level of power, including resource allocation and technical and domain-specific expertise, that could oversee a multi-year reform agenda. And state governments too in India must set visions and blueprints for pro-growth priorities. State-by-state -state choices would depend on agricultural resources, educated professionals, and port-proximate land. It also depends on the state's distance from the productivity frontier and the urgency of closing the gap in areas like power sector distribution losses, logistics costs, uh, and urban infrastructure. So states could create powerful demonstration effects by implementing a few of these ideas at scale. And, you know, India's business leaders must raise aspirations and commit to productivity growth with new business ideas. Long-term stakeholder value requires a long-term value creation mindset and a performance-oriented culture. Large, high-growth, globally competitive firms need winning capabilities and customer-centric innovation that focuses on next-generation ideas and greater localization in India 
and deliver operational excellence and scalable platforms that can cut unnecessary costs and embrace of automation and emerging AI technologies and, you know, even the ability to win in discontinuities, including disregarding established business practices and models to solve problems and fostering creativity and nimbleness and using well-executed mergers, acquisitions and investors. In the next decade, exemplary performance, including well-executed mergers, acquisitions and partnerships, clear reporting, strong accountability, transparency, a focus on ethical values and brands built on trust and prep and brands built on trust and purpose will become more important. So I will end this with this. There are two predictions about India's long-term growth. The first is by a renowned Indian economist who said India's per capita income could reach up to $30,000 by 2047. And if India's economy grows as fast as others, it could even be higher. The second projection is from a US business professor. He predicts that India's GDP will surpass Japan's by 2025 making it the world's third largest economy behind the US and China. And both forecasts independently made in two different parts of the world depend on many factors, most of which which we talked about. And the thing is, India's poverty, which is right now a very crucial factor, would be a distant memory if we can realize even half of our potential in the next 20 or 25 years. Let's hope we do our best. Anyways, that was about it for today. Thank you so much for sticking by till the end. Yeah, I had some issues with uploading this episode the last week, which I put on my Instagram. Anyways, that was figured. Obviously, I'm putting this out now. So, yeah, our second last episode. Just like that. Holy shit, it has been a year. Anyways, that's for next Sunday. I save the emotional torture for next Sunday. So, yeah. Share this if you liked it. Follow me on Instagram. I think you do by this point. And yeah, the link is in the end of the episode description. And just so you know, keep casting. And have a great Sunday. Bye.